This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you are. You're going to have to serve somebody. Little Bob Dylan? Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Uh, here on a Monday yes, afternoon. Serving somebody. You know, it's an interesting theme that has come much more into the fore of Wall Street and the investing world. Uh, Vijay Advani is the chief executive officer of Nuveen. He's based in San Francisco, but he's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio today. He's participating and a sponsor of the Bloomberg Global Responsible Investing Summit happening just upstairs from us here at Bloomberg World Headquarters. Vijay, great to have you here with Carol and myself. Great to be here. So give us a sense, because this has been long in the making, it feels like. People you know, want to do good, do well, do good, all of those things. And yet there seems to be a sense of urgency around this asset class, as it were. What's the catalyst there? Why, why does it feel more urgent now? I think the answer really is uh, the clients. The clients are demanding it. Um, 50% of high net worth individuals today are demanding some kind of responsible investing in their portfolio. 50%. 90% of high net worth millennials, and many of them living in San Francisco, I know <laughs> that there are many there, are asking for um, you know uh, responsible investing. And so think about $30 trillion are gonna transition over the next several decades to millennials. And so they're not only going to be wanting to do good themselves, but are demanding that their portfolio managers and investors actually make some kind of impact. This type of impactful investing, though, has been around for a while. We've definitely talked about it a lot. And I think for a while it was just kind of an interesting thing to add to your portfolio to make you kind of feel good, like hopefully it would have some kind of impact. It's changed, though. I feel like people are really looking at performance metrics and also, I feel like the definition of responsible investing is evolving as well. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's been a journey. I mean, at Naveen, TI Naveen, we've been involved in this for over 50 years, even way before it was, you know, people knew about it. When, when we first made our first investment in South Africa during the apartheid movement. So we've come a long way since then. And I think it started off with ESG, which is fairly well understood across. It started really in Europe and Australia, and it's slowly come and picking up here. But ESG has kind of become more and more mainstream. Uh, from ESG, the evolution was uh, for engagement. How do you engage with CEOs and CFOs? Uh, and it's not just about a screen. Right. And uh, today, last year, for example, we did 300 meetings with CFOs and CEOs on engagement, wow. on, on environment, governance, um, and impact. And the last stage really is impact investment, where it's directly having an impact on society. So that's a little bit new, and we're yet at the early stage because it's hard to measure that impact. And I think that's one of the challenges that the industry faces. Well, and it's interesting, the the clamor of voices, as it were, who seem to be really putting it out there. You know, Al Gore obviously has been talking about this in various ways and, you know, with his firm has been doing that. 
Roger Ferguson, mm-hmm. your boss, I guess, uh, ultimately has been a very big voice at, at TIAA around this. Larry Fink has waited. You know, all of these people, it does seem to have captured the imagination. One thing I think we have to ask you is measurement has got to be at the core, ultimately, for any client. To Carol's point, mm-hmm. they want to feel good about themselves. They also want to make money. Right. And so what are the key metrics that people should be thinking about here? Yeah, I think today uh, you can safely say that you don't necessarily have to give up returns to have a responsible investing theme. So as far as ESG is concerned, it's very easy to measure. It's it's uh, a portable, whether you have an ESG mandate in Australia, Europe, or the U.S., somebody can pretty much measure it across the globe. On the impact side, we at Naveen are working very closely with uh, academics, you know, institutions to see how you can measure this. There are, you know, the UNPRI goals are there. We can, you know, measure some of that. But I think that it's yet early days. So we are taking two steps forward, one step back on measurement on impact. But McKinsey came up with a study in India on impact investing that um, on financial inclusion that um, the median return was 10% in dollar terms. The top one-third percent generate uh, sorry the top one third generated 34 percent returns Wait, what so do you mean that when you think about these kinds of esg or impactful in, investing terms that this is the kind of the return that the they return? generated correct huh. exactly. that's real money yeah it is and so i think um the the real challenge now on impact specifically is how do you measure that that is portable across countries across sectors and i think it's early days there but uh, we are moving in the right direction because the clients are demanding it. Right. Yeah, yeah, and I would assume that more data out there is making mm-hmm. it easier to kind yes. of figure out stuff and measure it. Cool stuff. So much fun to uh, catch up with you. I feel like we could do this for a lot I longer. I hope you'll come area. back. It's, I'm especially fascinated by your background, working at the World Bank and, and some of the uh, places you're involved, the Hive Incubator uh, out there in Silicon Valley, Santa Clara University Investment Committee. So much more to get into, uh, but we'll do it next time. Vijay Advani. Chief Executive Officer of Nuveen, based in San Francisco, here with us Because I was thinking about things like the UN Sustainable Development Goals. I mean, those are very specific. No poverty, zero hunger. I mean, there's a lot of metrics that go into, you know, um, things and, and, and to try and improve the conditions for people around the world. So we'll have to have you come back. Yeah, information. We get more and more in the form of data. Uh, it was just last week we were talking with Robert Bell, the Intelligent Community Forum, Jason, about AI and what it might mean for your job. But AI machine learning increasingly being put to use in the financial community, which leads us to our next guest, Jim McVeigh. He is CEO at Syndex. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. Nice to have you here with us. Great to be here, Carol. I feel like we're constantly talking about um, all the data that's out there and, and how it's kind of being made into smart data, right? You know, it's just having a lot of data ain't useful. Absolutely. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the technology platform that you guys have created. And I am curious about the metrics that is kind of as much as you can share without giving away the secret sauce has gone into creating this platform. Absolutely. So what we did was, and, and obviously there's been a lot of investment in technology, both on the risk side and on the compliance side right. for much of these big banks, where there's been less, quite frankly, is on the banking side. 
And when we look back at it, Bloomberg was the real, last real innovation that bankers saw. That and Salesforce. Other than that, they didn't really get very much. And so what we did was we said, okay, how do we advance the deal process? How do we take all of this information around the globe and make it accessible to the person actually running the transaction? And so what we did was we went out and we collected data from both third-party sources, data we could scrape from the web, and then our own proprietary data, and we built technology that allows you to read all the transactions and descriptions of the companies and match you to the, the right transaction to the right investor or to the right corporate. And we allow you to do that in seconds versus you know, what traditionally would have taken you a week. Right. And so our goal is to not dis- necessarily displace the banker, but really give them more information so they can get a, a thoughtful deal done. Well, and let's talk about that because I feel like the, you are right at the crux of probably one of the greatest existential debates on Wall Street right now, which is the computers are coming. Mm-hmm. How am I going to deal with it? You know, if you're a trader, you're probably freaking out in a different way than maybe an investment banker. And there are probably some investment bankers out there like, Computer's never going to take my job because computer can't get on a plane. Computer can't develop a relationship with the CEO over years and years. So how do you convince those bankers? You were a banker for yourself. I mean, you've worked on some of the most high-profile deals of all time at some of the most well-known shops, whether it's Solomon, DLJ, many others. So how do you convince the bankers that this is a good product for them? Well, it's funny. The the first thing we do is we show it to them. And one of two reactions happens. They either – their eyes – widen out and they get really scared and they go oh my god the machines are actually coming (laughs) or they say okay how can i embrace this and use it so that i can get a better result for my client and at the end of the day we designed it with one the banker or the company in mind and we made it simple for them to use what we wanted to do was say let's give them more value than they think we're taking from them because that's always the big Uh, thing with a banker right a banker's like if you take away my relationships what do i bring to the table right and what we try to show them is We're going to bring you more. We're going to tell you that person who's going to actually do your transaction so that you can get it done and you can make more money. And at the end of the day, if you connect those dots for them, they embrace it. Well, we've had a story in, in the magazine, in, in Business Week magazine, that talks about venture capitalists. That Absolutely. by using AI and machine learning, you can filter through many more deals than you can humanly possible. And what's interesting is some of those smaller deals that you might have said, this isn't even worth my time, they become worth your time because you've got a machine really filtering through. Absolutely. So what we hear constantly from people is two things. One, it extends the breadth of what I can look at and what I can do. The other thing that we hear from them is, how do I take my proprietary data, bring it into your data set, run the algorithms, and give me something proprietary? And we're working with a number of clients right now to do exactly that. That's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, it's very cool stuff. So in other words, you're not given the proprietary data, but you can play around with it. We can play with it, right? So for each person that gives us their data, that's unique to them. We're never going to share that data but they're going to get a better result for themselves. And it really what it allows you to do is both keep in-house all that proprietary data. So if someone leaves, you're not losing that data. But two, be able to analyze more faster. All right. So we can't have a deal guy sitting in front of us without <laughs> asking about the deal environment, you know, especially as we go uh, into 19. You talk to a lot of people. You're a banker uh, yourself. What sort of moment are we at in, in sort of the deal cycle right now? You know, it's really interesting because from a technology standpoint, there's so many companies at risk that they really can't afford, regardless of what's going on in the marketplace, to ignore uh, technology and investing in that. Right. And so we, we see a lot of activity in that. Um, the other thing, and people always say, you know, with the volatility, is that bad for M&A and so forth? 
And what we're seeing is, one, you have private equity firms and venture capital firms that have a lot of money they want to put to work. Corporate balance sheets are really strong. And so from our perspective, we're seeing a lot of interest and so forth. And it's, it's interesting. Like last week alone, we got six inbounds. Because wow. we have a, both the technology side and the banking part. We got six inbounds for people wanting to hire us to do that. So, and that's without trying. So what does it tell you, just quickly, five seconds about the market cycle and the economy at, at large? You, you know, again, at the end of the day, people know that if they're not investing for the future and the They've technology that they it. need, yeah. that eventually they're going to go away. Right. So they have to do it. Um, and and the it. companies we deal with most are technology companies that are most attractive to them. Great stuff. Jim McVeigh, CEO over at Syndex, joining us in our studio. All right, so certainly a, a much more upbeat tone today. Risk trade back in the global markets. What says upbeat like Cindy Lauper? <laughs> she is pretty upbeat. Um, helped out big time, of course, the optimism by President Trump and President Xi of China agreeing to a truce in their trade war during a meeting at the G20. But as we know, and we talked earlier uh, as we kicked off our broadcast today, uh, there's still a lot yet to be known. Let's bring in our guest right now. Sean Donnan is with us. He's senior trade and globalization reporter at Bloomberg News from our 991 studio in the nation's capital. Ray Zhang is program assistant at the Kissinger Institute on China and the U.S. at the Wilson Center on the phone from Washington, D.C. Sean, though, lay it out for us. What was done? What still has to be done between the U.S. and China? Well, those are the big questions. And the answer is that we're getting to close to the close of the financial markets here uh, on Monday. And we still don't know a lot of the details of what was agreed on uh, on, on Saturday night. We're learning, uh, we've just learned in the last hour or so that from Larry Kudlow that, in fact, the 90-day truce may, in fact, be something more like a four-month truce. It might only begin on January 1st. Uh, the president uh, sent auto stocks soaring uh, with his tweet late last night uh, that China had agreed to remove its auto tariffs. Uh, His advisors have spent uh, the day today trying to explain exactly what he meant, and we still don't really know. Um, So, you know, we've got a pause in the tariffs. Uh, That is a good thing, uh, and and financial markets are are, are rightly welcoming that. But all the details are really unclear, and it's a pretty murky truce that that, that we're looking at right now. And then there's the kind of big challenge ahead. There's a tough negotiation ahead as well. Right. And uh, Ray Shang, I want you to come on in here because one of the things you did that's very helpful is you actually laid out a comparison of the statements. And as we noted earlier in the show, it was notable there wasn't a joint statement. And so it's left to smart people like you to help us understand the disparities between what each of the sides said. As you go through that, what's the biggest single disparity, as it were, between what we're hearing from each side? So, right, at the moment we have two different sets of details and how each government interpreted the outcome of the talks. So we have things, we have a lot of actually really important differences that we were looking to, for the two governments to clarify, ranging from the U.S.'s stance on the one China policy, which China designates, which is how China designates its relationship with Taiwan. There's also China's role in the opiate crisis in the United States. Specifically around fentanyl, fentanyl. right? Yes, yes. So those are all very important details. It's a little bit difficult to pick which is the most important detail, but given the two readouts so far, we're looking to get more information on the negotiation processes for just about everything that's been announced. 
Well, and one really important thing for investors to point out is the, that Qualcomm NXP deal, the White House saying that President Xi said he's open to approving the previously unapproved deal in the Chinese statement, Carol, not mentioned. Yeah, exactly, which is kind of interesting. Hey, Sean, come on back in on this conversation. What I'm curious, you know, what would be a significant sign that the U.S.-China relationship has moved ahead? Progress. Yeah, so, so so the thing we're looking for next is for the kind of senior officials to start sitting down and negotiating. Uh, we haven't seen that uh, since early in the summer. Uh, and it uh, when, when they came up with a deal then, it, it, it kind of got knocked back by, by President Trump. In that case, it was Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin who knocked it out. So we need to see the process start and get, get to work. That's the most important right. thing we're looking at first. Um, the second thing is to see whether the Chinese live up to this commitment uh, that uh, President Trump said they made to immediately start buying uh, U.S. agricultural right. exports. This gets into the soybeans that are rotting in those fields in North Dakota and uh, and so on. They've been one of the big victims in, 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 in the trade war. Likewise, right. uh, what happens on auto tariffs? Do the Chinese announce uh, a, a lowering of barriers? But, you know, right now we're, we're in this kind of uh, limbo waiting for, for real action, waiting for some clarity on, on, on where things go next. Ray Zhang, same question to you. What to you says we're moving, you know, the U.S.-China relationship forward, looking at, you know, maybe the 22nd century, you know, thinking about what to come and the role of the U.S. and China uh, in the world? So from the Chinese perspective, it's not surprising to see them eager to take an initial optimistic read on this. G20 is a high-profile multilateral summit. Promoting Xi Jinping's trade negotiation and economic planning is more or less mandatory right now. In the coming days, they're definitely aware that negotiation with the U.S. is going to be a grind. But from their perspective, Keeping the dialogue open is going to be important, and because the U.S. and China's economies are so closely integrated, there's definitely some value in the U.S. buying into continuing that dialogue as well. Really, really good stuff. Thank you so much to you both. Sean Donnan, Senior Trade and Globalization Reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from our Bloomberg 99.1 studio in the nation's capital, and Ray Shong, Program Assistant for the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States at the Wilson Center, also in Washington, joining us on the phone. And Carol, I have to say, you know, this is something I, I just made a note, and we'll probably talk about it a little bit later. Qualcomm and NXP, again, top of mind, just because mm -hmm. A, it's semiconductors, and B, it's a deal. Yeah. Uh, both of those stocks up more than 2%, I believe, each of them on this optimism that at least is coming from the White House. But so interesting that it's mentioned by one side and not the other. I mean, this is... I, this is classic yeah. Trump in, in, in yeah. a lot of ways, like putting some wins on the board and then people saying, well, wait, what? Right. Exactly. Well, I think it's fascinating kind of some of the negotiating that's going on. And I feel like we are just at the beginning of this process and we'll see what happens. But ultimately, there's a lot at stake, I think, safe to say for both sides, which is why investors have been so focused on it and why we're seeing a risk on trade globally today. Don't come around here no more. So this is the most read story on the Bloomberg today. The Wall With Street a bullet. I mean, it is by <laughs> far the most read. The Wall Street rule for the 
Me Too era. Katya Porzakansky is investing reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Katya, tell me, just when you think things can't get worse for women, if you think about what's been coming out over the last couple of years, it in fact kind of can. Yes. Tell us a, about your story. In a much more insidious way that, yeah. that um, I, you know, I like to refer to as death by a thousand paper cuts because it's very hard to prove a negative. And in this story, what we found is a lot of men are leaving women out of meetings, leaving women out of, you know, after work drinks, leaving um, women out of uh, of even job opportunities, um, not considering them. And why? Uh, the idea is um, more of a protectionist kind of policy. Uh, of, of there is a concern on on Wall Street, not just Wall Street. This is across the country um, in many many industries. But of course, we kind of put the microscope on on Wall Street uh, of of potentially getting into trouble because of an interaction that was misinterpreted or even some people thought about the possibility of a false accusation Um, and all of that kind of leads to a potential segregation of the industry even more than it already is um, where men aren't offering women mentorship uh, opportunities they're afraid. because they're afraid and yeah. you know obviously this is a disastrous policy in the long term well and I think what's so interesting you have a great quote you have a number of great quotes in the story but one of the things that really jumped out at me as I was reading it this morning was this idea of those men are going to I'm quoting here those men are going to back out of a sexual harassment complaint and right into a sex discrimination complaint so this is not an innocent in in any sense and it's potentially dangerous on on the back end absolutely in, in the long run um you know it, it can be dis- it can be very dangerous both from a liability standpoint and also in this standpoint of, of the future of the industry right um if this is happening on a larger scale and i you know i have to be to be sure we met a lot of men who were like this is crazy i would never do this um you know we have a we have a fellow in the story who it's like just don't be a jerk and you'll be fine right, right. he uses stronger words <laughs> than that strong... which is good you have to read the story to get it <laughs> um <laughs> it's yeah a family and, program. it's a family <laughs> show but um you know the, but of course um the the this is by no means, uh, uh, it wasn't difficult to find yeah. people who were doing this. And, and there are people who, you know, we even heard, um, you know, in, in smaller shops that uh, it could even be more like an unofficial company policy. But, uh, you know, you're never going to find a company admit to doing that, of course. It's just a lawsuit waiting to happen. And to be fair, it's not just the financial industry. We're mm-hmm. seeing it in other walks of life. But I guess what makes it so um, difficult is we've been talking a lot about the financial industry and women's inability to really get to those scenes your ranks. Absolutely. And that's the major issue here, which is that if you have men stepping back from mentorship roles, we have to take a look at who's in the higher ranks. Who are the people that are in the position to be mentors? Look at the facts. Only 15% of executives in Wall Street are women and only 26% of senior managers are women. So if you have the men rolling back, you're going to have a major imbalance here in who the potential mentors are. Especially when we talk about the importance of building out the bench, right? If you don't start it, and, it, and if everything slows down, I mean, it's a big step backward. Absolutely. Well, and we also know, you know, we talk about the pipeline, and clearly that could be affected here. But also, as you get more and more senior, it feels like in these firms, so much of it is predicated on, I worked closely with this person. I trust him or her. I want them on this team. And if you don't allow those interactions to happen, 
it's it, it is exclusionary by default. Yeah, it's a it's a you know it's a reputation business. It's a network business. Um, all of this is about relationships, both buy side and sell side. It's all about those relationships. Katya, is it just a case of the pendulum swinging? I'm just kind of trying to think this through, right? And we've seen this with lots of things. We're seeing it politically to some mm-hmm. extent, right? We swing one way and then we swing back. Is it a case of hopefully that there's enough awareness. I don't know what you're hearing from the financial community saying, okay, we want to be careful that this doesn't happen, that women get even excluded more. Or right now, it's just everybody kind of running scared. I think the problem here is it's not a reaction of good of 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 a thoughtful reaction it's 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 a defensive reaction Mm -hmm. so it's not a let me be more respectful to my female colleagues reaction it's a i'm going to just stay away from women altogether reaction which is definitely not you want to be more inclusive not exclusive Right. right so this exclusive policy I mean, if you, I mean, I'm, a lot of people can call it, and you know, the pendulum swung too far. You know, this is what happens. You know, the backlash of Me Too, but it's that's a, I think, pretty ignorant kind of response in the sense that um, this is not what women wanted. <laughs> women want right, to be included. Right. right. Um, you know, women, women want protection, and and unfortunately, in a lot of these industries, the, the sincerely, the irony of this is that. They are going to protect these these industries. Protect their revenue generators. If if someone who's making money for the company gets in trouble for actually doing something, or in the very improbable scenario of a false accusation, they're going to be protected. Right. right. It's a great, great story. Katja Porchikansky, investing reporter. This is a story co-written with Jillian Tan. It's the most read, and I note, most emailed story uh, on the terminal today. Not surprising. It is absolutely uh, the talk of Wall Street. Congrats on a great story. Thank you. Thank you. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close, and our next guest bringing up the possibility of a Santa Claus rally. Maybe it's begun already. David Dietz in the house, founder, president, and chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth. $330 million in assets under management, uh, based in Summit, but as I mentioned, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York on this Monday. Nice to have you in studio. We're usually talking on the phone, but great to have you here in person. So good to be here. Thank you very much. So talk to us about this Santa Claus rally. Uh, you know, I don't feel, uh, uh, we talk about it often, we see it. <laughs> And after last week's move in equities, we actually are up for the year. Yeah, Carol came into the studio today, (laughs) all jingle bells, after the (laughs) stock rally last week. Well, you know, historically, December is the best month of the year. No one's quite sure why, but certainly no policymakers want to rain on anyone's uh, parade, as it were, in the last month of the year, which is so important for such a wide swath of the economy like the retailers. So, you know, the two big bogey issues really were interest rates and tariffs. We got some dovish comments from Jerome Powell last Wednesday. The market had a very nice rally after that. And, of course, following this weekend with, you know, successful discussion between President Xi and and. Mr. Trump, um, we've got a truce on our tariffs, and that has lit a fire under this market. And so even even though, and we've been talking about this all show long, 
even though it's a little, shall we say, light on specifics and we don't have total agreement. We actually had a guest earlier breaking down sort of what the Chinese are saying versus what the Americans are saying in terms of their statements. But it sounds like it's enough to at least not tamp down any enthusiasm, shall we say. It's a start. As some commentator said this morning, it's better than a uh, stick in the eye. (laughs) Um, So we do know that 15% of of new tariffs is not going to be imposed starting in January 1. That's deferred to about April 1. Um, And of course, these are thorny issues. It's not just percentages of taxes on goods being transported, but also intellectual property protection, um, the forced transfer of goods, having to hook up with Chinese partners when American companies go in. All these are going to take time to resolve. This means the dialogue is continuing. So where do you see us, though, in this economic and market cycle, David? Putting everything else aside, right? It's almost the longest economic cycle uh, on re- uh, of record. It's been the longest bull run <laughs> that we've ever seen. So where are we in this process? You know, that's a great question because as long as the economy holds I remain a bull on stocks, no matter where the interest rates and tariffs are. Hmm. Um, I, I guess all eyes have to be trained on that Federal Reserve, because historically, what often has caused recession, recessions is the Fed tightens too much too quickly. And of course, because there's such a long lead time before you see the effects of interest rate hikes, it's really hard for them to know when to pause. Right. So let's talk about a couple names you like, because we always like to go down, uh, go down a level. As you know, one that jumped out at me, Goldman Sachs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the the sector that was a real disappointment this year really has been the financials. Everyone said there's going to be higher interest rates. They're going to make bigger margins. That just hasn't materialized. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're still looking for quality. We're looking to be opportunistic. So arguably Goldman Sachs is the finest investment bank in the world. Now, it's under a cloud because yeah. of the bad news with Malaysia. But we still see that as not a permanent affliction. And we'll take a stock that's moved down from about 275 down well below 200, close to liquidation value. And I'm thinking, you know, this is the name you want your son or daughter to work there. Um, it's probably always going to be involved in every banking effort. And here it's trading with no premium to what liquidation would bring an investment. Yeah, it's amazing. Seven and a half times current or forward-looking PEs. Exactly. And of course, they're expanding the percentage of their businesses in wealth management. They're getting into digital retail finance. So they're making the right move to stay with the trends. I think, you know, uh, also this was a company that Warren Buffett added to his holdings in Q3. So talk to us about, Jason, I love talking about the chip sector. It's very near and dear to Jason, having covered it as a reporter early on in his career here at Bloomberg News. Um, AMAT. The, the, the chip sector overall has been whacked around and messed around uh, this year. AMAT is down, I don't know, is it 24 25% so far this year? Um, you been, like it. Yeah, absolutely. Is it just because it's a value play or you like the company and the fundamentals? Three reasons, really. One is, of course, the whole technology sector is a secular theme. So one of the ways to ward off potential cyclical recessions to get something that should grow no matter what the GDP is doing. Certainly technology fits that. And of course, the whole movement into the Internet of Things. But why are these chip sectors? Okay, so if you buy into that, and we love gadgets and devices, and there's more chips going into everything in my life at this point and our lives. Why is it, though, the chip sectors 
having such a tough time. Is it just a cyclical story that we've seen again? I, I don't know. Uh, oh, well, see, the, partly it's a good question, and that may be where your opportunity is. So we're looking for quality. Applied materials doesn't just make chips. They make the equipment that helps make chips. So they're like, you know, the, the class act. They're not just a commodity chip maker. So I think concerns about tariffs, concerns about global trade have driven the whole group down. So we're looking for the ones that are making good money now, that are paying a dividend, and will be around uh, over the foreseeable future. All right, got to ask you about Exxon because energy is a story that we talk about all the time, mostly through the context of oil prices, but also infrastructure, consumption, OPEC, all of it. How does Exxon fit into this thesis? Well, I mean, you have to look at a sector where their basic product has had one of the worst months ever. That was crude oil in November, down by almost a third, right? So, but we're you know still cautious as to where that may go. Certainly, all the producers are cautious. I thought it was unbelievable that the province of Alberta said ordered their producers to cut back production by nine percent. They're almost a de facto member of OPEC. Anyway, Exxon, of course, is diversified across all the different facets of energy production, right. including refining and chemicals you got a big fat 4.3 percent dividend so if the story remains difficult you've got you're paid while you wait and if any kind of rebound i think exxon participates nicely all right interesting stuff none of the big tech though none of the fang stocks um we like intel as another chip player uh, okay. which has about a three percent dividend well off its 52 week high but in case there is some uh, rockiness with the economy i think intel holds up well Good stuff. And love talking stocks. We really do. David, thank you so much. Have a great holiday. Nice to see you uh, in the house. David Dietz, founder, president, and chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management. As I mentioned, $330 million in assets under management. David, I can usually find him in Summit, New Jersey, but... uh Found his way to our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio. It was great to see him. It was great to catch up in person. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.